0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Biblical Woman Podcast. I'm Kat. And I'm Nicole. Every season we choose to do a deep dive into a book of scripture. And in the past we've done Obadiah, Lamentation, Habakkuk, etc. We're going to be jumping into another Old Testament book today, and I'm super excited. But before you meet our special guest for today, who is good friends with my husband and I, Ruth is a really popular book amongst women groups. It's kind of like a, a go to book for us, but it really doesn't seem to be that way with men. So when I told our guest, you know, hey, you know, you can talk about anything you want, anything, I was shocked to hear that he's like, you know, I want to talk about Ruth. And I was impressed and amazed because I think this was legitimately the first time I had heard a man be like, yeah, I think we need to study and discuss Ruth. So I'm very excited to kind of dive into this book from both an academic and more of a male perspective, because I think he's really going to highlight some great things.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited for this. And I'm with you, Kat. I have never heard of a men's Bible study group going over the book of Ruth or Esther. So I'm super pumped for this as well. Yeah, there definitely seems to be this gender
0: divide when it comes to Ruth for some reason. But Let me introduce you guys to our guest today. Like I said, he is a great friend of my husband and I. His name is Kelly Craft, and he is serving at Redeemer OPC Church in Dayton, Ohio. So if you're in the area, you'll have to stop by and tell him, hey. So if you're in the area, you'll have to stop by and tell him, hi. Hi. He graduated last spring with his Master's in Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He's also studied biblical theology, Christian ministries, and philosophy. He is married to his beautiful wife, Alex, and they have two cute little boys named Lucas and Oliver. Welcome to the show, Kelly.
2: Hey, yeah. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here, and I'm excited to discuss uh, Scripture with you all.
0: So let's get started. So, Kelly, how would you define biblical theology?
2: Yeah, that's that's a, a very big task. Um, but I think Gerhardus Voss, who's a um, 20th century Reformed uh, theologian, and he defines biblical theology in this way. He says that biblical theology is the display of the organic process of supernatural revelation and its historic continuity and multiformity. What Voss means is that biblical theology, the study of it, um, really is the study of divine scripture. Its its source comes from God, not from man. And when Voss, Voss talks about the um, organic process of supernatural revelation, what he means is, is that in the scriptures we see from Genesis to Revelation, the outworking of, of God's plan for history, his purpose in history, um, this plan Is organic um, in the sense that it doesn't change. All of its parts from uh, beginning to middle to end fit together into an an organic whole, Um, though it has many diverse layers as God's plan progresses through history. In this definition, when Voss says, um, you know, biblical theology is the display of the organic process of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity, what Voss means is because it's history. We're studying God's deeds and acts in history. Um, there's progress. There's development. There's a goal that all of history is heading toward, um, namely um, the consummation of all things um, in Christ, the, the summation of the kingdom of God. And Voss gives this really helpful analogy that will help us to think about what biblical theology is in general and then how to do it. He gives the analogy of an acorn, uh, you know, if you think about beginning, uh, especially God's promise to, to Adam and Eve after the fall, what is commonly called the Proto Evangelion, the, the first gospel promise, um, that He would give offspring a seed to the woman. But Voss says, you know, in in acorn form, we see the gospel promised. But as we as redemptive history progresses, and and Abraham um, comes on the scene, and and his offspring is made up into a nation of Israel, and and David uh, becomes king, and the, the gospel promise becomes clearer and clearer. And and we see that this, what was an acorn in Genesis 3.15, now it becomes a sapling or a seedling. And then in full blossom, and at the end of Revelation, when we see the heavens and the earth coming together, God's people and 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 Christ being united, we see the gospel being in full bloom uh, as like a mighty oak tree. And so all of God's revelation, really, Old and New Testament, are content continuity. Though they have difference, um, they're largely um, of one cloth. Really, biblical theology helps to open up the Bible, whether you focus on one book um, and its relation to the rest or a piece of books like the whole of the Pentateuch. um, It really helps us to appreciate all the parts in the whole
0: that's such a great analogy for biblical theology. It really helps give us this holistic view of Scripture and to really see how the Bible is connected.
2: I, I can think of growing up in, um, in more dispensational churches where there's mm-hmm. a sharp divide between the Old and the New Testaments. You know, God doesn't have two different plans um, for, for, for His people throughout the ages. He has one plan in Christ. And I think that's um, the use of biblical theology and, and the goal. To, is to highlight that
0: yes you know biblical theology helps us see the big plan that God has had all along for his people so now that we know why biblical theology is important what are some ways that we can practice it
2: so one example is is to trace a, a theme through through uh, from genesis to revelation so um we might trace uh God's presence and so in, in the garden you know God's presence was manifest um where in, in the garden among with adam and eve where they walked with him in the cool of the day and then that that we see that same uh reality of god's presence whether through theophany uh various appearings to to abraham and and isaac and jacob um or in dreams and then uh, obviously climatically in in the in the burning bush and then in, in the the tabernacle that and then we see that um progressively um being even more climatically fulfilled um, in, in the temple, in, in Solomon's day, God's presence resides among God's people in the temple, and, and they come before him and worship and offering sacrifices and so on. And then John, in his gospel, in uh, 1.14, tells us that, um, that God, uh, that the eternal word of God, Christ, tabernacled, became flesh, dwelt uh, among men. And, and we see the, the fulfillment of, of God's presence um, being made incarnate um, among, among mankind. And, and we even see um, how that is, is fulfilled even further as th- after Pentecost. And Paul has this language, temple language of, in, in his epistles about the church being built up as a temple um, uh, because God now resides in Christ through his spirit um, among God's people. And so, um, that tabernacling um, presence of God is fulfilled um, in Christ and and through His people. And so that's just one example of of how one theme can be traced from Genesis to Revelation.
0: That's so cool. Biblical theology really helps us see how the whole Bible is interconnected. But it also helps us understand, you know, individual books of the Bible a little bit better. We can take one theme from a certain book or a group of books and see how it's weaved throughout that entire book or group of books. And this is what we're going to be doing with the book of Ruth. We're going to be talking about this idea of returning and repentance, Hesed, God's covenant, faithfulness, or kindness, as well as some others. So I'm super excited. But before we can jump into this awesome book, we got to have a little bit of background info. It's time for some context.
2: Yeah, I you know I think some scholars want to paint this as, as a novella. Uh, I don't know if you've if you've watched um, those Hispanic dramas, telenovelas. Uh, sometimes my wife <laughs> she she uh, enjoys watching those, but um, I think that downplays um, the historicity of the Book of Ruth we definitely, I think the author, whether that's Samuel or someone else, whoever's authoring this book is, is highlighting the importance that it's grounded in history, right? That the whole aim of this book is to support and, and show that the, necess- the necessity of the Davidic dynasty. And so it's important that it's grounded in history. Um, but when we talk about Ruth being a romantic comedy, you know, it's not a rom-com as we think Hollywood does it. Um, but although I'd love, I would love to see, um, Uh, a well-done rendition of of this book. I think it it could be done very well, but leaving it up to Hollywood would be a blunder. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. (laughs) But but anyone who reads this book, I mean, I'm not sure what's been in your experience and I'll be candid, but um, every time I read through the book of Ruth, you know, if you read it in one sitting, which is easy to do, uh, it's very easy to be brought to tears because your heart breaks with Naomi. You know, you you see her loss and you're just like, Oh my goodness. You know? It, and especially if you've experienced kind of loss like this, you're like, I know what she's feeling like you, you, you're, you're just brought down with her. But as, as the, you know, this story is filled with tension and, 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 um, you know, it builds up, um, as, as we will, we'll see here in a bit. Um, and it's, it's brought with almost, ah, uh, you know, when we see the nearer redeemer, we're almost like, Oh no, Boaz isn't going to redeem Ruth. And then you're like, oh wait, he is. And uh, you're just brought along grippingly um, with the story. And that way, um, I, I think uh, it can be rightly termed um, a romantic comedy. You know, it is, it is about romance, it's about love, not simply and only between Boaz and Ruth, but between Naomi and Ruth, between um, uh, the Lord and his people. Um, and And when we look close at the text, you know, there's a lot of wordplay. There's a lot of poet, poetic imagery. There's, um, there's a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say hilarious or funny parts, but just ironic. There's a lot of irony playing out throughout this account, and, and I think that can also play into uh, the genre as well when we speak about it um, being romantic comedy. Well, one thing that might be helpful is the fact that this book is idyllic in the sense that, and this adds to kind of giving a right understanding to that genre as romantic comedy it you know everything is um, besides the first five verses is happy-go-lucky you know um, it's it's nothing tragic happens after the first five verses um, the tragedy kind of sets the stage as an introduction but um, everything happens as, a, as it should you know it has a happy ending you know the guy gets the girl uh the the woman the older woman is restored uh every israel is no longer in famine um e- even all the coincidences that happen um as we see in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 um the, it's just it's too good to be true it's it's a story even nao um orpa who is who's the woman who leaves naomi and and um the nearer kinsman redeemer though we have things to learn from them though they did not uh, to the fullest extent of kindness, as Ruth and, and Boaz exemplify, they're not vilified by the author. They're just kind of left alone. As they have their, their characters are foils to show the, the greater kindness, the greater hesed that's displayed by Ruth and Boaz. Um, but the, But the author never vilifies. Even the less good characters, they're still noted as good.
0: Now that we know the context, let's dive into this book. Ruth opens up with a very bleak setting. Famine has overtaken the land, and this family decides to pack up and head to Moab in search of something better. Yeah, right. it
1: reminds me of Exodus, right? You know, like that's the whole reason, you know, that Jacob and his family went to Egypt was because of the the famine. So this kind of reminds me of, you know, a little bit of a similar situation going on.
2: What's happening here is Elimelech's family, uh, representative of the, the whole people of God, they physically leave Israel. In reality, at the time of the judges, the majority of the nation's hearts were far from God. In this way, the people of this family really are personifying the entire part of the nation.
0: That's a really good point. This family represents the state of Israel's heart wandering far from God. The family travels into the land of Moab, with the intent of sojourning, but instead we see them planting roots over a period of a decade. You know, they find employment, the sons get married to Opal and Ruth, and they really form a life here for themselves
2: in this foreign land. The fact of the matter is, and the reality is, that they stayed there 10 years. This shows that, you know, they are willing to forsake God's promises and uh, forsake God's care of his people for, for the, the gods of Moab, essentially. That's what the reality of, of the state is.
0: Then Naomi's husband and two sons die. Ruth, Opal, Naomi are now all destitute, barren widows.
2: All that they sought for in Moab is gone. And often God does this, doesn't he? He When we take pleasure in our idols or in things that God uh, demands that and, and commands that we, we do not partake in, um, but they seem good, right, to us. In our own eyes, we we seek them out. And what does God do? Well, he he breaks us down. He destroys those idols, and and we realize we have nothing left. And so we come back to God um, because there's nothing left for us. And so sometimes that, that's what God's discipline will do.
1: Mm-hmm. And we see
2: that here in, in the first five verses.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's so rich. And I love that you're able to just bring this context and these themes through for us, um, because I think that's easy to miss when you're just reading it, you know, as as the story. Right. So so then in the rest of chapter one, we see that now that these men have passed away, Naomi's like telling her her daughter in laws, hey, go back to Moab. Right. Go back to the land where you're from. Like, leave me. There's nothing. I have nothing for you. Is essentially what she's saying.
2: And they say together unanimously, No, in verse 10, we will return with you to your people. Naomi even blessed them in in verse 9, saying, Yahweh grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of your own husband, that you might not live like me, become old and barren and and widowed, but may you have a husband. But they reject this offer initially and, and say, We'd rather be with you, right? And so we see it's interesting that even these Moabite women display has said, we have a play on the word return in verse six. And in verse eight, Naomi arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. And as we spoke in the introduction, this language of returning is sometimes um, emphatic of, of repenting, right? We, Naomi hears this good news. and, And finally, she's like, yes, I need to return back to the Lord, back to his land. But we see even in verse 11 through 13, that she's not quite there yet. She's not quite full-hearted repentance. She's she's realizing I have nothing left. I have to go back to the land. Maybe uh, people will take care of me. If Naomi was in a right state of mind, she would say, yes, come back with me. Don't follow the gods of your, your fathers and, and of your mothers. Follow the God of, of, of Israel, right? Um, right? But that's not what we see here.
0: Right. Naomi urges them to go back, which does mean returning to their false gods. Opal hears Naomi and she's like, yeah, you're right. You know, this is logical. It makes sense. But Ruth disagrees with them. She stays and clings to Naomi as Opal
2: leaves. And that's the first really loud ringing we hear of Ruth's character, of her demonstration of hesed. Not only by following her initially did she alongside Orpah demonstrate hesed, but by clinging to her, she demonstrated said. And then verse 15, we see a glimpse of, of what this means. Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But see, Ruth Ruth not only is clinging to Naomi, but in her confession, as we will see in verse 16 and 17. It's really confession of faith. We see um, Naomi Blindsided by her own bitterness and and, uh, pain and turmoil, she didn't realize that staying close to Naomi was more than just about a a commitment out of goodwill for Ruth. What it was, was a commitment to her, her God now.
0: And after hearing how strong Ruth's confession of faith was, Naomi was quiet. She saw how devoted Ruth was, and together they returned. When they arrived
2: at Bethlehem, the
0: whole town was stirred up. It had been ten years since they had seen Naomi.
2: And again and again, the author is saying, "They came, they came." The two of them, both of them, were coming to Bethlehem. Um, and the language is striking because this is the first time that that Ruth has ever been to Bethlehem. Right? She grew up in Moab, mm-hmm. and yet it's Ruth who's returning. We see it again in verse two. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the moabite her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of moab ruth is doing the returning the true returning true turning unto the lord for for provision and sustenance while naomi's at this point is going through the motions um and but it's really the ironically the moabite who's doing the returning here
0: ruth was the one who underwent true repentance she did the real returning in quotation marks As for Naomi, it really seems like she was just going through the motions. She was looking at everything that she had lost and blaming God. She's bitter. She doesn't want to acknowledge her own sin in choosing to abandon God in the first place. But despite all of this, God doesn't forsake her. At this point, you know, all Naomi can see are her losses and not the daughter that's clinging to her side. Ruth the Moabite was truly repentant, and we see her desiring to follow the Lord. Kelly, if you had to summarize, what would you say the major theme is for Ruth chapter one?
2: A theme that runs not only through uh, chapter one, but through, throughout the whole book is this theme of, of death to life. Um, it could go under many other names, probably, um, or characterizations. Exile to restoration. Um, death to resurrection, barrenness and emptiness, um, lifeless to uh, fullness of life um, and and fruitfulness, and I, I think that's one major um, theme, if not the the primary theme that we see um, going throughout the whole book of Ruth.
0: I think it's going to be really cool to see how you trace this theme of death to life, or you know, death to restoration, throughout the entire book.
2: We, we can see this theme um, at various levels. You know, we have the national level. Um, it, we see this theme playing out in the nation of Israel itself. And then we also see it on the um, individual level and in the lives of, of this family, um, but also in, in Ruth particularly and in Naomi and in Boaz and in some of the individuals that come into play in chapter four. And so as we come to the end of chapter one, we're reminded that, that the nation of Israel was in famine, right? The whole nation was experiencing a kind of exile, a kind of death of their, their crops. Um, they didn't have a way of life. And that's why Naomi's family left. What time did they return?
0: They returned at the time of the harvest when there was plenty.
2: Even there is a key, as we jump into chapter two, of the life that is about to spring forth from um, the dead.
0: In the first couple verses of Ruth chapter two, we see Ruth is going out to work the field. You know, she is trying to secure a way of life for herself and Naomi because they're destitute. They don't have children. They don't have husbands. So Ruth steps up to the plate.
2: And this is very interesting that she takes the initiative because in chapter one, she makes this this faithful uh, expression and, and confession that she'll be faithful to Naomi and to her God. And so even in that, we see the beginning of Naomi's or, or Ruth's own turn from death to life, that she did serve foreign gods. And now she's covenanting herself to Yahweh and to, to Naomi as well. And now in, in chapter two, we see her taking this initiative as one who's, who's been reborn um, to serve her, her spiritual mother.
0: And Ruth didn't have to do this, yet she did. She was incredibly brave because she was a stranger in a foreign land where danger could have been lurking for her, you know, in these fields, but God was looking out for her.
2: As she gleans in the field, um, you know, the author is very, all this is happening about by happenstance or coincidence, right? She just happens to go out into this field and it happens to be Boaz's field. What do you know? and, and at the same time, Boaz comes out and, and meets comes to meet her. And he says, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged you or I have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And then he promises to give her uh, thirsty. Um, if she's thirsty, she'll give him her water and she'll give her uh, food as well.
0: This is a very strong display of hesed from Boaz. And we also see it again when he sits Ruth down at the feast. We see him being kind to her in both his words and his deeds.
2: And Ruth is very struck by this. You know, she's she says, you know, I'm a foreigner. I have no place among the people of Israel. I Why are you treating me with this, with, with such hesed?" And he, he basically says in verse 11 and 12, all that you've done for your mother-in-law. The kindness, the hesed that you've shown her um, has been fully told to me. And so he's now saying the Lord repay you um, for what you've done and full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge.
0: Yeah, you get Boaz's perspective or point of view on Ruth's actions.
2: When Naomi and Ruth came back from the land of Moab, you know, they, they went there because they thought that's where life was. But it's in returning that that Hebrew word shuv of returning, which can also have the connotation of repentance. It's when you return and come to the Lord um, that you will uh, truly find life and truly find refuge. It's it's under His wings, Yahweh's wings, the Lord's wings, the God of Israel, um, that true life, rest, refuge, and security is found. And and Boaz here is taking on that in kind of a typical messianic way. He's taking on as he spread his wings, um, and that wing language is 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 uh, symbolic of, of a cloak that uh, a robe that someone might have and spread over um, to to put over someone and cover them with their the wings of their garment. And so, um, we see that Ruth it, is in her coming to Israel, um, she's finding fullness of life. You know, she's finding um, not just temporal security but eternal security. Um, and this is symbolically portrayed um, through Boaz's um, economic and social uh, security that he provides for her and food.
1: I love that. We can see that it's not just, as you said, her just having her basic needs met and that's it. This is an abundance. And this also includes protection, which for a woman is a huge deal even now, yeah. uh, but Especially back then. And it's just such a beautiful picture.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and so not only does um, we see God's providence here, not only does Ruth happen upon Boaz's field, uh, you know, but Boaz is a worthy man. Remember, he's a worthy man. And so he is a man in whom she will find favor.
0: That's such a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty out of all the fields that Ruth could have gone to. It was Boaz who just happened, just happened to be a possible redeemer for her.
2: Right. It's it's beautiful. And the ambiguity that the author paints is just one of those, the touches, the personal touches that makes Ruth such a charming story. He, he overemphasizes the fact that all oh, this is just happenstance so that the reader will know, well, there's no way that all these things are just happening uh, mm-hmm. by coincidence that uh, there's got to be a sovereign hand at work. And and there is, and it's the Lord at work for sure.
0: I think noting God's sovereignty in this chapter and in this book as a whole is a great way to close chapter two. So let's take a look at chapter three. So at the beginning of this chapter, Naomi comes to Ruth and says that she desires for Ruth to have life.
2: And and she she urges her in a, in a very striking manner. It's a very... Um, lucrative and provocative offer that she that she uh, urges Ruth to do you know she says put on perfume put on uh, your best dress um, anoint yourself she's literally using like, bridal kind of imagery right and she says you you go out to the winnowing floor the threshing floor where Boaz is at night lie down there beside him and he'll tell you what to do putting this in in the kind of context that Israel is in you know, the time of the judges when every man does what is right in his own eyes. Um, Israel, as a nation, is spiritually destitute, right? They are spiritually lifeless, barren. And yet you have this righteous woman and this righteous man at the threshing floor at night, and you're wondering what's going to happen. And the prophet's Hosea, basically Hosea rebukes Israel in that, what do they do at the threshing floor? It's Hosea 9.1. He, he says, this is where you commit idolatry you know, while while the men are supposed to be working um, at the threshing floor, women and prostitutes come out. And so, all this language is very provocative. You know, we have the language of, of her lying down at his feet, uncovering him, but he's drunk in wine um, and eaten and he's full. And, and um, you know, what do we see Ruth doing? Uh, she doesn't do anything provocative. She doesn't, you know, especially with Ruth being the heir of the Moabites, where did the Moabites get their origin? Well, Lot was drunk and his daughter slept with him, right? And so mm. the reader is, is here wondering, will history repeat itself? But this righteous woman and this righteous man uh, obviously turn a new leaf. And this is the beginning of, of how Israel as a nation by these two individuals, by this family, will begin to um, be restored to life as well. And in verse 9, he says to her, who are you? And she says, "I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings." This is that redemptive language again. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. And and he praises her and and says, "You know, I'll do all that you you can, all that you ask." And this language of spread your wings is is also um, used in the prophet Ezekiel. What it is is really is a marriage proposal. Uh, for be my husband is what she's saying, and and Boaz is shocked because. She could have gone after anybody else. He says, you know, I'll do all that I can to redeem you.
0: That moment in scripture had me cheering, go girl, for Ruth. Like what a brave and bold move on her part. She chose purity and righteousness in how she proposes to Boaz, which is pretty cool in and of itself. Um, but especially when we know, you know her background and the history of the Moabites, they both had a choice and yet they both chose to honor God. We can view Boaz as a type of Christ and Ruth as a portrayal of the church. She displays how we should pursue godliness in our lives. Needless to say, I love this chapter. And so, after she has this meeting with Boaz, she returns home to Naomi with good news. This is a turning point for both of them. From the death and barrenness that they experienced at the beginning of the chapter to the hope that they now have that Boaz will honor his word and resolve this matter with haste. In chapter three, Boaz reveals that there's actually another possible redeemer who is closer than he is. So chapter four opens with Boaz marching to the gate to go talk to this other man.
2: The, the no-named man, the other potential redeemer, sits down with the elders of the city and he brings his case and he says, you know, Naomi is is... Selling back this land um, because it's not really in her name anymore. She needs someone to purchase it back for her because when she went away to Moab um, and it belonged to Elimelech, her husband, who's now dead. And so what's going on here is kind of like a combination of both laws of Levite redemption of, of the land when it, when it, to keep it in the name of the clan, right? So the clan. Um, in this case, uh, the Ephrathite clan of, of um, Judah does not lose this portion of land. It stays within the clan. So someone else, a near relative, needs to buy it, purchase it back on her behalf. But also we have combined is the Levite marriage um, laws that are stipulated in Deuteronomy and Leviticus as well, which state that if if the wife of a brother, the brother dies, um, if, if a husband, if, if a wife's husband dies, then. The husband who's dead, brother who's still alive, ought to marry her so that she doesn't go destitute, right? And this is exactly what happens, as we see later in the chapter with Boaz's great-great-great-grandparents, um, Judah and Tamar, right? Judah didn't let his sons, his son marry um, Tamar because uh, they kept dying and he didn't want his his last son to die as well.
0: So the nearer redeemer's like, yeah, this is great. I get the land. I get Naomi. But Boaz is like, now, hang on, hang on. There's a catch. You also have to take Ruth, the Moabite.
2: And implying you need to perpetuate the name of her dead husband um, so that she as well um, and Naomi might might have offspring, that their name, the name of Elimelech, the father of Mathon, might not um, be blotted out of, of the nation, that they might continue to live. By way of their offspring.
0: After hearing this, the nearer redeemer is like, ah, no, Ah, thanks, but no thanks. He was worried about messing up or losing out on his own inheritance. So he looks at Boaz and tells him to redeem them. And this is such an interesting contrast to me because we have Ruth, you know, this foreign woman who has no protection, yet she risked everything to pursue her redeemer. But this nearer redeemer was more concerned with his own well-being and inheritance than taking care of these widowed
2: women. Ironically, in doing that, looking out for himself, his name in verse 1 we saw is not written down. His name, which would have theoretically been blotted out because Elimelech's name was one being preserved, right? If he would have taken these women to himself, he would have been preserving the name of Elimelech, not of his own. And that was the problem. Well, um, it's ironically now in the re- record of this this story, his name is blotted out, right? It's as if his name is dead and no longer being perpetuated. Israel will have forgotten his name.
0: The elders who witnessed this event of said, you know, they bless Boaz and they declare that his name should be renowned
2: in the land. And we see that it's, at the genealogy at the end of the book, it's it's not Elimelech or Mathlon who um, are the legal heirs, right of of Obed, the father that comes through um, Ruth, but Boaz. Um, though he's he's the he's the, he's the father um, biologically speaking, the legal heir, the name that's supposed to be passed down is Elimelech and Mathlon, but we see. Um, In this genealogy, for theological purposes, um, it's Boaz. And so he's the name that's remembered. Um, And Yahweh is the name that's remembered because of his actions through this family.
0: So Boaz and Ruth get married, and soon they are expecting a child, which is a great blessing because Ruth, in her first marriage, had been barren for 10 years. But now God has blessed her with a baby. He has truly blessed her and Boaz, but he's also been really faithful and kind to Naomi. He has given her a grandson, and she lays him down on her lap and silently takes care of him. She recognizes God's blessing in her life.
2: In, in restoring this family, God is restoring Israel. Even what, in this time of the judges, you know we see that uh, their spiritual state is being shown through uh, the time of famine, and yet what does God do? Well, He He brings food back um, on the table and the house of bread. He He provides food through the harvest, and and we see as this book closes that God will He's not forgotten His people. He will be the restorer of life, and He will do that through the house of David.
0: That's such a beautiful way to end this book. What started with death and barrenness now ends in life and restoration.
1: I love that we were able to trace that theme throughout the entire book and that this wasn't just, you know, loving kindness towards Ruth and Naomi. This was to actually the whole nation of Israel and and even to us, too.
0: Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Kelly. It was an honor to have you. Thank you for discussing biblical theology and tracing this theme of death to life and death to restoration with us. It's been such a great episode.
2: Well, thank you guys so much for having me on. It was, it was a pleasure. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed learning and, and discussing with you all. And
0: Thank you again, Kelly. Let's close out today with a Bible verse from Jude 125. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.